Welcome to the Reunion Church Podcast. We're a community following Jesus, seeking the good of our city. We hope today's teaching is both challenging and encouraging. If we could be a resource to you on your spiritual journey, don't hesitate to reach out via our website at reunionnyc.com. Today's teaching text comes from Mark 14, 1 through 11. Now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or the people may riot. While he was in Bethany reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why 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 this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priest to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. And so, Father, I uh, give you thanks um, to be here, to be present today. by meeting us here by your grace and by your spirit. I pray, uh, Father, that uh, our hearts would be attuned to what you have to speak and to communicate, that our minds would be open um, to new ideas, um, that our minds would be open to being stretched today about who you are, um, and that we wouldn't leave here uh, the same because we've understood something more about you. And so, God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight. In your name we pray. Amen. So, um, in this passage, you'll notice um, there's some smells going on, perfumes, right? And our noses actually know a lot about nostalgia. Um, I was walking in Hell's Kitchen earlier this week, and I was hit with this powerful aroma. Uh, The air was uh, cheap cleaning supplies, it was cold, and it was like this yeasty bread. And I was like transported back to second grade in the cafeteria when I couldn't leave until I finished all my food. Like, I don't know if this happened to you. And then sure enough, I turned the corner and there was a public school. And I was like, wow, that was incredible. Um, I'm sure you've had that a lot um, uh, happen to you uh, in the city. Uh, My personal favorite smell is, um, I'm from Arizona, desert rain. Desert rain is the greatest smell of all time. It's like dry and you're just longing for like a little bit of moisture and boom, it hits the ground and it brings up this aroma. Or I don't know about you, this is a little bit weird maybe, but winter is receding and that hot subway air is coming. I hate it, but I love it. All right, I hate it, but I love it. I don't know, there's something about it that just warms you up and getting a lot of head shaking at me. What's your favorite smell, Marcellus? Tell me. I'm coming back to you. I'm coming back. He's shaking his head at me too much, all right? The nose knows nostalgia, all right? Well, according to one researcher, I read this um, uh, in a Harvard journal this week, smells are handled by the olfactory bulb. 
The structure in the front of the brain that sends information to other areas of the body's central command for further processing. Odors take a direct route to the limbic system, including the amygdala and the hippocampus, the regions related to emotion and memory. This is why smells trigger emotion and memory to us. And I have to wonder if that's not what happens in our passage today. This symbolic act, this gesture of faith poured out onto Jesus actually triggers for these early followers a memory, that smell. Sometimes I read the, um, I read the Bible and I read it without any emotion. Right, like there's, there's no emotion in the text and there's no emotion in me. But that's actually wildly unrealistic to what's actually taking place in the Bible. Jesus is heading towards his death. This um, symbolic gesture is in action preparing him for his death. I would imagine this is a very emotional scene, which is maybe why this fragrance um, could be remembered. It's an embodied action. And we talk about this fairly often around here, but our faith is actually looking for an embodied response. We're trying to do spirituality with our body, which is what we'll talk about um, more in a little bit here. But I want to notice sort of two contextual things um, happening here. And I hope that, um, you know, by, by walking through a whole book of the Bible very slowly like this, we're actually learning um, not only things about the text itself, but we're actually learning how to study the Bible as, as a whole. That would actually be a beneficial thing for us. Um, what you find in this passage, there's 11 verses. Verses 1 and 2 and verses 10 and 11 um, can actually serve as the plot for what's happening. And uh, this is like a geeky Bible thing, but this is actually called a chiasm or a chiastic structure. Um, the better way or the easier way to remember this is that it's a sandwich. All right, In a sandwich, you have bread, meat or something if you're vegan, and then bread, right? So bread, something, bread. The real sustenance of the sandwich is found in the middle, but it, what makes it complete is the outer parts. And so if you read this passage actually cutting out the middle parts, the story from verses 3 to 9 about this um, woman anointing Jesus, it would actually make perfect sense. It, you, would, you would hear about what's taking place, where they are, what's happening, Judas betraying Jesus, and it would be fine. But what the gospel writer has brilliantly done is the gospel writer has actually inserted a story right in the middle of it. And it's, a, it's like a mind game almost. It's like a little uh, technique or feature of writing. Basically, the, the, the gospel writer is saying, hey, I want you to compare and contrast these two individuals. They both say that they're following Jesus, but it looks wildly and completely different. But the writer never actually tells you that. They just give you the chiastic structure to tell you what that looks like. Here's what darkness looks like. Judas Iscariot. Here's an example and a model of faith. Here's an example of light through this woman. But don't forget about the darkness. I'm heading to the cross. All right. So that's one textual feature uh, that, that's worth understanding in this passage. And we'll talk more about that at the end here. But the other thing that's um, worth speaking to before we break down the text is Jesus's inclusion and treatment of women in this time. And I was not thinking about this particularly because it's like Women's History Month or anything like that. But I got to reading and studying this text and I thought, why, why is it that in chapter 12, we talked about this about a month ago, um, women are, are um, held up as an example of faith and the same thing is happening here. And in order to really understand this, we need to understand something a little bit dark here. But women in antiquity, um, in both Jewish and Roman uh, in circles, um, we're, we're subject to inequality, um, hardship, chauvinism, patriarchal culture, and I'm going to give you some examples of this, and you're going to say that is an understatement, right? 
Um, one sociologist I was reading this week, Rodney Stark, he wrote a wonderful book called The Rise of Christianity. Um, and he estimated that in the Greco-Roman world, there was um, a shortage of women, so much so that there were about 140 men for every 100 women. And of course, you'd say, well, what, what happened? What took place? And in the ancient world, um, infanticide was, was common. And so women were viewed as a drain on society and would often be left to die if they were born the, you know, the wrong sex. Um, so um, Rodney Stark also recorded um, in his book, The Rise of Christianity, that um, he, he takes this letter that, he, um, that was found written in 1 BC. Um, it was a, a letter written for, uh, by a guy named Hilarion um, to his wife. I think it's, it should be on the screen here. Um, I asked and beg of you to take good care of our baby son. If you are delivered of a child before I come home, if it is a boy, keep it. If a girl, discard it. You have sent me word, don't forget me. How can I forget you? I beg you not to worry. What is he saying? He's saying, I have a deep care for my wife. I'm not going to forget you. But what does he say of his possible daughter? He says, discard. There was an old rabbinic prayer that would have went something like this. Blessed are you, Lord, our God, ruler of the universe. Thank you for not making me a slave, a Gentile, or a woman. And so in this time, a woman's place was, um, was clearly thought to be in the home. Women were responsible for bearing children, rearing them, um, maintaining a place of hospitality. Um, even um, men were not to um, associate with women in public. And some went even as far to say is that women could leave the house if they were to go to the temple or the synagogue. Um, even in the temple, um, if you pull up a diagram of the, the architecture of the temple, um, women were actually restricted to an outer court. They were only allowed up to a certain point in, in the temple. And I think you get a glimpse of the ideology of the time. There's this passage in Luke. I, we won't go all, all into it. But Jesus is teaching, and a woman begins to interrupt Jesus while he's teaching. And she says, God bless your mother, the womb from which you came, and the breast that, uh, that nursed you. And you think... With a compliment that, like that, Jesus would be like, well, you know, thank you. I, I do have a wonderful mother. By the way, she was a virgin, you know, like a really cool story, you know. Um, but instead, Jesus says something really interesting. He says, but even more blessed are all who hear the word of God and put it into practice. And it's as if Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. You're wrong. For Jesus, the, the highest calling uh, for a woman is not to, to bear a child, though motherhood is a, is a noble calling. Um, but it's not ultimate. And, and I think I wanted to show you this this morning, um, not to dishearten you or, or to get you confused about this text, but actually to get a glimpse of the culture and the society in which the New Testament unfolds. What's happening underneath it? And then how are we reading the Bible and finding out that Jesus was actually radically inclusive in his time? Particularly in comparison to what was happening with inequality, chauvinism, patriarchal culture. Story after story, um, in, in, particularly in Mark, we're finding um, women in prominent leadership roles in comparison to the other disciples who just seem to can't get it right. So women were, uh, are found to be the most faithful and reliable followers of Jesus. This is a point that's, that's being repeatedly um, made. Um, and I won't belabor this, but I, I, I think what that means for us as a church community is um, how are we leaning into that? How are we leading, um, uh, um, how are we leading out in um, having women preach and having um, women lead teams around our church and to really encourage a, a biblical viewpoint um, towards um, 
uh, the inclusion of women. So anyway, that was another feature of this text. But uh, I'll actually uh, transition with this. Beth Allison Barr, she wrote a book called The Making of Biblical Womanhood. And she says this. Not only did early Christians place women in leadership roles, they met together on equal footing, men, women, children, and slaves. In the privacy of the home, a traditionally female space, Christianity was deviant and immoral because it was perceived as undermining ideals of Roman masculinity. The Gospel of Mark was written somewhere around 60, 70 AD when Christians are facing a lot of persecution. And so actually this begins to make sense. This would, this would begin to um, pique the curiosity of the culture around them, which is probably why they faced additional um, persecution. And this right here is where we find Jesus in our text. He's, uh, it says he's reclining in a home in Bethany. He, he's already breaking down these cultural barriers. Bethany sits uh, two miles outside of Jerusalem um, to the east. And here's what verse 3 says. While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Now this is interesting. We're getting selective details, right? That's what the Bible often gives us is selective details. But... Mark is giving us a lot here about the container. He's giving us a lot about the contents of the container. And he's actually giving us a lot about the cost of this. And so in the container, we have an alabaster flask or jar. It would have been um, made of material that was precious, something you would pay a lot of attention to, right? This is not something you keep lying around in, in, in your purse. This would be fragile. Also, you get its content. It says that it's made of pure nard. Nard is like an aromatic plant. Um, I was reading this week that it grows on the, the foothills of the Himalayas. So this would have been an imported uh, good, probably from northern India. So we're getting that it's fragile and that it's rare. And then lastly, we get to its cost. It would have been very expensive. I think Matthew says it was worth 300 denarii. Um, in our text, it says it could have been sold for more than a year's wages. All right. And so it was expensive, rare, fragile and expensive. Um, in addition to what we were talking about before, women were by and large excluded from careers that afforded the possibility of having something like this. So what most scholars actually think is that this alabaster flask was actually a, a sort of family heirloom that was passed down. And so you don't, um, you wouldn't keep something on your person like this, which tells us when this woman comes to anoint Jesus, she's coming with purpose. Right? You hide this thing away. You keep this safeguarded in, in, in your house. But she brings it out to Jesus, which tells me that this is a premeditated act. She's decided that she wants to do this. Normally, you would bring this out for one of two reasons. The first being um, you would bring it out um, and use it at your wedding. You could use it on your wedding night. It could be used as a gift um, to the, the family as in a dowry. Or she wasn't married, it would be used for a death, her own or someone special in her life. And that's actually what we find in the text is that she uses this and gives it away to a death that she finds meaningful. What are we finding in the text? It's a symbol, right? It, it, it's a symbol of, of something that's happening in her. Or maybe a better way to say it would be that it's an outward expression of an inward desire. It's an outward expression of an inward love. Something has happened in her, and she has decided to do this. In a lot of ways, you think about this. Um, 
Think about something you own that costs you uh, a year's wage. I don't know if many of us own things like that anymore. But something like this would, in a lot of ways, represent some form of security to her, right? It's probably not all of her assets, but it's something in her life that she could look back on and say, if, if all goes awry in my life, I still have that, you know? If I lost everything in the stock market, I would still have that. I could live for a year on that. And so what is she doing? She's pouring out her future onto Jesus. Um, I'll never forget um, back in 2018, uh, my wife and I, we felt called to start this church. And um, we had a house, a three-bedroom house. And we were like, we're going for it. And we sold everything in our house. And it sounded really cool and exciting. Um, it, it, it sounds cool now, even kind of to say it. But back then, it was not cool. Um, we, we sold most everything that we owned at a garage sale. And then we took all the contents that we owned and put it in her parents' basement on this carpet. It was like an eight by 10 carpet and everything that we owned was on that. And we were like, this is gonna be amazing. We're gonna, like, we're gonna go in faith and, and do this. But meanwhile, I think both of us are like really confident, but like our knees are shaking, right? Um, losing the things that we actually found security in, right? Coming home to the comfort of that place that we knew, the first place that we lived in um, when we were married. And then of course we got pregnant, that's a whole other story, you know? So that adds to the, the insecure feelings that we had in that time. But I would say the primary feeling that um, we are experiencing in that season is fear. Because we actually had a lot of things that we were placing our trust and our security in, and we had to let it go. She's pouring out her future onto Jesus. And I, I love what the text says. It says she broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. The word broke there in the Greek is broke. All right? Like it shattered. It, it doesn't, it, it, that's all that it means. It doesn't, the text doesn't say she like twisted it open carefully and like used a little bit on Jesus. But she was like, I'm actually going to abandon myself fully to this moment and to this scenario and give it away. It will never be used again. It cannot be sold. I'm never going to have another occasion where I can give this. And it makes me sort of wonder. We don't get, we don't get the answer. But it's like, how did this woman run into Jesus and it, and it made sense to her to do this? Like, where was the grace operating in, in her life that she felt like, you know what? This inward thing that I have going on deserves a meaningful expression. And so what does this passage teach us? What, what, is, what is God trying to say? God, what are you trying to say in this, this moment um, for us? Because I think this woman understands something about following Jesus and, and worshiping Jesus. And my question actually becomes, how does Jesus want to be worshipped? How does Jesus want to be worshipped? So, like, you showed up here today. Maybe you've been to church before. You know, maybe you go occasionally. But you, you think to yourself, like, okay, I show up. You know, like, hopefully someone will meet me. And, like, we'll sing some songs. And we're going to learn some things. And I'm going to, you know, be both challenged and encouraged. And I hope all of those things are true, but I think it's almost worth, worth asking, like, if we come into this space and really believe that Jesus is who he says he is and he's going to do all the things that he's promised to do, how does God want to be worshipped? How does God want us to give our time and our attention and our affections and our very resources over to him in worship? So this is the question I, I want to answer for the rest of our time here. How does Jesus want to be Worship, And I'll just say uh, three things. The first is this. He wants to be worshipped, I believe, with an almost, almost wasteful devotion. Here's verse four. 
Some of those presents, present were saying indignantly to her, or to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And I don't know about you, but if I'm honest, I can actually kind of get behind this logic. Like, just use a little bit, sell the rest, let's give the money away, let's do good things in our neighborhood. I actually, this actually makes a lot of sense to me. And then the, the, the phrase there, they rebuked her harshly, it, it literally means like, means like they like snorted at her. They were like angry. They raised their nostrils at her. And, and I don't know if, if there's anything that's sort of uh, genuine here, um, but ultimately um, they end up demeaning the woman. But, but even more than that, I got to thinking about this, isn't there a better use for the money? Aren't they also saying something about Jesus? Aren't they also in one sense saying, you know what, Jesus isn't actually worthy of such extravagance. I don't think that we should actually give ourselves over to him that much, right? But that's not what happens in the text. The lavishness and the extravagance and this sort of raw human emotion is too much for everyone in the room but Jesus. Look what he says. Leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. Leave her alone. She's done something toward my impending death. The point of her action somewhere along the way means that Jesus has made an impression on her, and she wants to respond to that believing that she can actually give an act of expression. A meaningful impression always deserves a meaningful expression. I remember um, back in, it would have been 2013 or 2014, um, I did a funeral um, for uh, an older gentleman, and uh, he was sort of a a prodigal in in nature. Uh, He had um, ran away from home multiple times, and... um, spent his life um, pursuing money, sex, drugs, all of it. His story was, was, was really wild. But the thing that was really striking about this funeral was that about six months before his death, he, he had gotten his life together. He had moved back close to his sister who lived near the church I was working at at the time. And um, it was absolutely tragic. But in that six months, um, he, had, uh, he had made a lot of impact on people. Um, showing up... Um, to, to, to see them, taking them out for lunch, asking them questions about them. And then um, he tragically died of a heart issue when he was mowing the lawn. And so I got the call to do this, this funeral. Um, and we planned the funeral, um, and it was the easiest funeral I ever had to write. They gave me, um, they said in preparation for his funeral, here's his Bible. And he had written notes upon notes in his Bible, um, and I used them to, to write his funeral. But I'll never forget person after person coming up and said, I never got to express to him what he did to me in those six months. It was like six, seven, eight people just kept coming up and saying, the time that he spent talking to me, listening to me, asking me questions, I'll never forget what that meant. And they never got to express it back to him. It was a really, really probably the most beautiful funeral I've, I've ever been to. But these meaningful impressions that we have actually deserve an expression, right? If you think about it, um, a very like, simple way to think about it is a wedding. A wedding 
is an outward expression of someone's inward desire to both love and commit themselves to another person. It's very visible. It's very tangible. And we actually need more things like this culturally so that we as people can actually do the thing we talked about in the beginning, which is begin to embody what we believe. Uh, this is why I think the sacraments in the church are so important, right? It's one thing to say, I, I believe that Jesus is who he says he is. He's going to do all the things that he's promised to do. It's a whole other thing to say, I'm actually going to go public with that in baptism. I'm actually going to resonate with the, the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus through being baptized, going underneath the water, and being raised to new life. One of the ways this becomes really practical to us as a church community um, is through our, what we call, uh, liturgy. And you might hear this word around here, and I'm trying to demystify a little bit. Uh, a liturgy is just a habit-forming practice. Uh, a liturgy is just a habit-forming practice. And so we have ways that we want to actually have repetition um, and a, a liturgical structure, have you, um, that are in actually embodied ways for us to do this devotion thing. Right? In an almost wasteful manner, right? Like, if this is our time, and I respect your time, and, and we come together um, to worship, but like, we actually come here um, not to hear a person talk or to, to sing some songs, but we actually come here um, to give ourselves over to the purposes of God, right? To give ourselves away and to say, actually, I'm going to submit to these practices because they shape me in the, the weekend and the week out. And I think the, the important part of this is this is actually how we learn. Okay, we think we learn by sitting down and reading a textbook. But I can promise me, promise you, you hate that, right? I. When's the last time you like built furniture, got the manual, and started reading it? Not a chance, right? You take all the pieces out and you just start trying to figure it out because actually we learn by practice and repetition, right? Our hearts are triggered first. I, I, I could say this is so true about me. I didn't follow Jesus because I understood the cross. Right? I didn't follow Jesus because I understood you know, Genesis. I, I followed Jesus because I saw somebody else doing it and I said, I think that's a better way to live my life. Right? And so let me just walk you through a couple things that we do around here that, that make this practical because I don't – I, I want to be mindful of our time and I want to respect us. But actually what we come here to do is to, to give over of ourselves in worship. So what about our prayers of the people that Emily just did? What is she, what is she doing when she comes up to do that? I don't know about you, but I'm learning to pray differently, right? I'm actually learning to pray with a little bit more reverence and awe to who the character of God is. I don't pray like, where else do you pray like that? Nowhere, right? You're just praying personally, right? But there's actually a corporate nature, and we're saying things that um, we desire to believe, even though sometimes we're not sure of it yet, right? Like, I, we were just singing this song. We will follow none but thee. What are we doing? We're singing so that we might believe that. Are we, are we doing that in the day to day? Like probably not. Or we're wrestling with that. But what are we often doing? And the, the, uh, David does this in the Psalms all the time. He's speaking into belief what he wants to believe in his heart. And so that's what we're doing through that. And it's also... Um, counter to the ways that we generally um, live our life, right? Generally, when we pray, it becomes a sort of laundry list for like the things that we want to, to, to see or experience, right? Jesus, help me in this moment. Like I'm struggling with whatever it may be, right? But actually, when, when we pray the prayers of the people, we're saying collectively as a people, God, we want to see you move in our city. 
We, we want to see things change. We, we, we want to grow. We want, we want our city to be different because we believe that you are still at work in the world. What about um, this act of confession? We try to do this about once a month right now. Confession and absolution. What we're actually doing is we're learning to be honest. We're learning to be truthful about who we are, our shortcomings, our sin. And then on the, on the back end of our confession, what do we do? We do absolution. And we're saying we believe that the gospel, the good news about Jesus, actually forgives us from those things. So we don't live into the guilt and the shame and the condemnation that those things bring to our lives. And we want to live differently. And by confessing them corporately, we're learning how to be honest. Uh, next week, we're going to talk about um, the communion um, and, and the Eucharist. But we come here to be tangibly reminded of the gospel. I don't know about you, but um, we were talking about smells in the beginning. Um, the communion elements actually engage our five senses, right? We touch them. We see them. We taste them. We smell them. And it's this reminder. I don't know if you've ever um, been out and like had grape juice. And it, it could just trigger that communion moment where you're reminded of your need for good news, these practices that shape and form us. So how does Jesus want to be worshipped? I would say that he wants to be worshipped with an almost wasteful devotion that we might give ourselves over to him. What's the second one? second one is this, in a spirit of hospitality, with a spirit of hospitality. I love that this passage is this sort of chiasm where we're learning about who's in and who's out. Right, and it's, we're, get, we're getting the the uh, script flipped on who's in and who's out. Verse nine says, "Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her." Who's easier to remember in the gospel story, this woman or Judas? Judas is right, and so we actually need to be reminded that Jesus is saying, "No, no, 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 no. That's actually not how you're supposed to remember this story. What you're supposed to remember is the person." gave faithfully, anointed me, anticipated my death. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priest to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. And so here's this sort of juxtaposition, right? You have the religious leaders. You have one of Jesus' very own disciples, all trusted men who are doing what? Colluding to kill the anointed one, the Messiah, the one that is to come. And then juxtaposed to this is an unnamed woman who is not supposed to know anything and yet who actually does the very act of anointing. And we're building this, um, what's being built in Mark 14 is a sort of uh, motif, insider and outsider motif. We're moving out of Jerusalem into Bethany, outside. Uh, The other feature that we didn't talk about was whose home are we in? Simon the leper. You don't, you don't go near that person, right? You, you, you don't do that. This is the furthest you could be in the Jewish society to being an outsider would, would to be a leper. Bethany, Simon the leper, and an unnamed woman. Outsiders. And the people that are supposed to be inside are out. And the people that are supposed to be outside are in. I just, doesn't this just trigger like what, what we do and how we do it and why we should do it and how Jesus wants to be worshipped? And it flips the script on, I think, oftentimes um, how we should spend our time and how, how we should think about what we're doing when we come to worship. And this is what hospitality ultimately does, right? If you enter into a, 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 a new place or a new home, what is your longing and your hope? I don't want to be the outsider anymore. I want to be welcomed in to be 
included. But Jesus did not come to coddle self-righteous people. Jesus did not come to coddle self-righteous people. Jesus came to give his life away to make outsiders insiders. And I think that this is like a, I don't know if there's a challenge in that for us or what, but like, I want you to, I want us to, let's just say it this way. I want me to be more mindful of how I perceive who's in and who's out in my language and how I welcome people into a space that I'm, I'm a part of creating or, or a space that I'm new to, to, to begin to feel what it's like to be new in that space so that we understand that all people are actually welcomed and encouraged to come from the outside to feel like they're on the inside. And one more word on that. I think the word that's really important um, in 2023 is the word safety. Um, can we as a church be safe places? Can, can our service on Sunday mornings be a place of question and exploration? Uh, but even further than that, what about our community groups? Our community groups can actually be place, places where um, we can come with, with our wrestlings and our struggles, our skepticisms and our fears, our brokenness and our questions, and to know that they're actually welcomed. And I think this is a really good reminder of that. How does Jesus want to be worshipped? With an almost wasteful devotion, with a spirit of hospitality, and then lastly is this, with an understanding of the gospel. With an understanding of the gospel. Verse 8 says, She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. I love that. in the larger story here, right? This, this story of the gospel. Wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will be told. This is the last time um, the word gospel is going to come out of Jesus' mouth in the book of Mark. And what does this communicate? This story, her action, her deed, right? Jesus says her deed cannot even be forgotten. Why is that? Well, the disciples have been around Jesus, right? They, they've seen him do so many memorable things. But this is the one that is like, I want you to remember this, this anointing. The word here um, is prolambano, like she, 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 she knows in advance, she understands what's about to happen. What is it saying? She understands the death. What did Jesus say over and over and over again? I'm going to the cross and I'm going to die and in three days I'm going to resurrect. I'm going to die and I'm going to resurrect. He keeps saying the same thing over and over and over again. And the disciples say, they're still confused. They're still confused. They're still confused. It's like getting closer and closer and darker and darker. And yet some unnamed woman in the gospel comes and breaks this jar. It's almost as if she's saying, hey, you know what? I know you're going to die, but I'm going to be a part of it. I'm, I'm, you're going to die, but I'm going to be a part of the story that you're telling. It's this weird sort of um, like prophetic moment where she actually understands she came beforehand to prepare for his burial. She gets it. She understands the gospel. She actually has enough faith to say, I know that you're going to die. It's almost as if she knows though too, I know you're going to resurrect. I want to be with you in this moment. I'm going to be a part of it because I know the whole story. I know the story start to finish. And what an act of faith that she has to come and to give herself in this way a full understanding of the gospel. So here's what I want us to do. Um, If you wouldn't mind closing your eyes. 
I want, to, I want us to imagine this scene in our mind. The intensity of it, the emotion of it, the power of the moment. And I want you to hear maybe what Jesus might be thinking about. Jesus has come into Bethany, a place of safety and reprieve from the intensity of the crowds, a reprieve from confrontation, a reprieve from teaching. He's relaxed at this table. And I sort of imagine him at the center of the room, not seeking out any attention, but allowing this woman to come and to anoint him with this oil. And I wonder if Psalm 23, which Rachel read earlier, is on his mind. Knowing that Judas is about to betray him for 30 pieces of silver, Psalm 23 says this. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I wonder if Jesus had Psalm 23 on his mind as this oil flowed over his head. The band can come up. Let's pray. So, Father, I love you, and um, I thank you for this expression, this moment of beauty, this maybe even an awkward moment in some ways for other people, but for this woman, it was an act of devotion and care. It was a moment for her to express the change that you made in her life. And Lord, I pray that we would be that kind of people, that we would be that kind of church that are expressing how we love you and how we long to be shaped by your spirit, how we need to be reminded of your good news. And as we um, sing songs, may, may we do some introspection. Do we really believe this? Do we, are we really ready to give ourselves away with this sort of wasteful devotion? Are we mindful of our neighbor in an act of hospitality? Are we mindful of the story that you're telling through the gospel, that it's good news, and that you want to be worshipped in that way? Lord, as we come and partake of communion together uh, this morning, may it be different. May it be uh, a reminder, your body broken for us, your, uh, the cup, your blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. May it be more an act of devotion and love and response towards your good news this morning. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.